About seven years ago, I heard Scott McKnight give a talk called, Did Jesus Preach the Gospel? It seems like an innocuous question, but in it he pointed out that when people use the word gospel, they mean any number of things, from a plan of salvation, they might mean justification by faith. Sometimes we talk about sharing the gospel in terms of sharing the Romans Road, a series of verses in the book of Romans, you might note, not a gospel. And when we use words to convey such a variety of meanings, they might end up losing their meaning entirely. When gospel can mean anything you want it to mean, then it doesn't actually mean anything. And one of the many things that stuck with me from this talk is that in order to understand what the earliest Christians thought they were doing when they preached the gospel, what they thought was at the core of their message, we should look at the sermons that they themselves preached in the Acts of the Apostles. It's there that we find some of the most simplified and distilled explanations from the first disciples as to what it meant to proclaim this good news. Whatever they were preaching was probably what they figured was the core, the heart of the good news of Jesus. And today we heard a piece of that very first sermon that the church had, the first sermon of the church, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Now I'll do a quick recap of the events of Acts 2 to kind of put this bit of the sermon in context. Jesus had ascended to heaven. The disciples were gathered and praying together, waiting for what to do next. The Holy Spirit descends upon them in tongues of fire. They begin to tell the mighty works of God in their own language, but it's understood in a variety of different languages. And then some accuse them of being drunk, and Peter opens his Pentecost sermon saying, listen, we aren't drunk. An opener I have yet to have to use in any of my sermons. Let's knock on, let's pray that continues. And then he explained what happened, quoting from the prophet Joel that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on all flesh. Visions, dreams, young men, etc., etc. And then, once he had explained this miraculous event, he gets into the meat of his sermon. I think since we read it every Pentecost, we often think about this sermon as primarily about the descending of the Holy Spirit. But that summary would cut out most of what Peter actually preaches. It's this proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, over the course of the Easter season, our readings will come from the book of Acts, giving us a picture of what the church is. And I think this message from Peter is crucial because it's the first example of the church's declarative work declaring the good news that the disciples are going to commit the rest of their lives to preaching. Because the people of God are in the declaration business, but our message isn't always consistent. I think if you asked a random person on the street, what is the primary message of the Christian church, you'd probably get a lot of different answers. Uh, I had the idea in my head that I might try this out, go out and ask strangers, but I'm not much of a go out and ask strangers thing kind of person. But I can imagine what people might say short of raw data that I'm not going to collect. So they might say something like, Jesus is the center of the Christian message. They might talk about living a good life. Perhaps they bring up the Ten Commandments. Maybe they talk about forgiveness of sins. Maybe they might talk about hating sin. Um, perhaps certain placards at military funerals would come up. If the church is in the business of telling good news, we really should work on clarifying what the good news is. So here's a summary of the things that Peter says in his sermon or at least the little piece we heard today. He brought up that Jesus was clearly special, a thing proven by miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus performed. He says that you, the people of Jerusalem, that is, handed him over to death according to God's plan and foreknowledge. Death lost that fight, and that David said something about this in the Psalms in a prophecy that couldn't have been about David because David is, as we know, dead, and that this Davidic prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Peter's sermon, like many of the sermons in Acts, frames the story of Jesus as a fulfillment of God's plan to redeem humanity, a plan he had formed since the beginning of time. The story of Jesus is the capstone of the grand narrative of salvation history. Luke told us in his gospel the story of the Emmaus Road, where two disciples are walking, Jesus encounters them, and he explains to them how all of the scriptures pointed to him as they walk. And then in this sermon and other sermons and acts, Luke records the disciples doing the same thing, explaining Jesus in the context of the Old Testament, explaining Jesus as this fulfillment of a grand plan, that what happened to and through Jesus was not by chance, that God wasn't passive, that he intended for things to go the way they did so that he could fulfill the promises he made to David and to Abraham and to redeem the people of the world who would become the people of God. And for me, the, the key verse in at least what we read today, um, it's beautiful the way the NIV translates it. It says this, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If we want to see what the message of the gospel is, if we want to know what the mission of the church is, somewhere in the midst of all of it must be this declaration, that Jesus was handed over to death, something very common, of course, but it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. Because I think this truth redefines and clarifies everything. It redefines who our enemies are and what victory looks like. Peter points out that his listeners put Jesus to death. He says, you did this with the help of the Romans. And so it would be natural to assume that Peter is saying that they were the enemies of Jesus. I mean, who is your enemy other than the person who kills you? But by clarifying God's role in Jesus' betrayal, Peter shows that the enemy is someone else entirely. The people of God had for so long been oppressed by Greeks and Romans and Philistines and Assyrians that they had come to believe that their true enemy were those foreign armies that the role of the Messiah was to free God's people from political oppression, that that was the chief aim of God's anointed one. And it's something God had done a number of other times. It's the cycle of judges. And we might even see hints of this in the songs of praise in the first chapters of Luke from Mary and Zechariah. If we wanted to, we could read that into it. They say things like, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. These are true songs inspired by the Holy Spirit that we get to understand on this side of the resurrection. But I wonder what Mary and Zechariah thought the coming Messiah might look like if they too imagined a mighty political figure who would lead an army to defeat the Romans. But Jesus was doing something much more significant than simply winning political freedom for a people group in the Middle East. His mission would come to affect the whole world. And we see hints of this global plan, this global intention all throughout Jesus' ministry, that although he was the Messiah to the Jews, he offered living water to a Samaritan woman. He healed the servant of a centurion, a Roman soldier. He marvels at that soldier's faith, saying, no one in Israel has faith like this. And then he openly and publicly criticizes the temple rulers and the temple itself, symbols of Jewish, religious, and national identity. For the Messiah to say, I've come to judge the temple, seems to make everything backwards. The temple is the point, right? Well, it turns out the real enemy is not the person who fights against you or the nation that oppresses you. The real enemy is not the person who voted for or against your candidate or for or against school funding as much as we might feel like it is. The enemy is sin and death, the very forces that inspire evil actions in the first place. 
the coldness, the absence of God that still ravages mankind. And Jesus' battle was against that true enemy of mankind. And victory over that enemy does not look like other victories. And the battlefield doesn't look like other battlefields. You see, the cross is where failed messiahs go. If you were on a cross, it meant you had already lost, that Rome and the forces of this world had gotten the better of you. It was shameful, meant to discourage future rebellion. It's the way Rome kept the peace by saying, this is what happens to you when you fight us. Our English translations sometimes call them thieves, but the two men that hung next to Jesus were insurrectionists, zealots who would come up against the might of Rome and lost. But the church says something different. We say that although it looked as if death had won, as if death had swept the series, it was impossible for death to keep a hold of him. This is the declaration of the church, particularly in Eastertide, that the real enemy of the people of God and of humanity is not other humans. It isn't the people who oppress us. It's not even the people who kill us. The enemy is sin and its wage, death. And as Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so what is the church? The church is the people who declare the victory of God over sin and death. Now, although defeated, these forces still kick and scratch and fight wherever they can. We heard about it in 1 Peter as he talked about the people of God being persecuted. And I don't think any of us need to spend a lot of time trying to think up examples of where evil seems to still reign. But we have faith that just as God planned to win the victory through the resurrection of his Messiah, he plans to bring that victory to completion at the end of the ages. And then we announce this victory that death couldn't hold Jesus. We announce that while we all struggle with how to make sense of the evil that exists in the world, God's response to evil was not to give us some sort of foolproof example, some sort of quote, some philosophical statement that we can use to make sense of everything, but gave us himself. His son who came face to face with all the sin of the world and took it upon himself unto his death, but came through on the other side in victory. He's not a distant God who observes evil happening and solves it from afar, or even worse, doesn't care. He's a God who becomes one of us. The incarnation was not God just appearing among men, but becoming human. It's interesting to note that although we often have to contend that Jesus was more than human, that he was fully God, the very first heresies, doctrines that the church found incompatible with her teaching, were the ones that denied Jesus' humanity. The first things the church had to say were not true about Jesus were the people who said he only appeared to be human or that he only took on part of humanity, but he, he left some of it aside. Jesus came truly among us and became fully man. And so the Christian declaration is not just a philosophical system, but an event. Philosophical systems are things that we apply to our lives, structures that we use to categorize and understand the world around us. They are very good, and philosophy and theology help us articulate and give language to things that are complex and hard to understand. But those systems on their own are just ideas that we use to make sense of reality. And the church declares a fundamental change in reality itself, that death, which we all know to be a universal thing that everybody experiences, that everybody will eventually succumb to, had a perfect record in defeating humanity, and yet it could not keep its hold on Jesus, this human from Nazareth. 
And because of that, we believe the world is now a different place, that something has fundamentally changed. And now we can hope not only in our eventual resurrections, but the renewal and restoration of all things, beginning perhaps even now. We declare this in our words, but also in our lives, bringing life wherever we can. And if you'll allow me to repurpose a political term somewhat awkwardly, the church is at its inception and at its core pro-life, in that we believe God has given new life and made life new for all who are willing to follow him, that life is the final answer, not death. We remind ourselves and others that our enemy is sin and death and try to make our communities, our societies, any place where we have influence reflect that truth. Our enemy's not a political party, a politician, foreign nations, or terrorists. The early church shared the good news of the defeat of death with the people who jailed them, the emperors who condemned them, and their brothers and sisters who stoned them. One of the sermons we get in Acts sharing this story of Jesus being the capstone of salvation history is Stephen just before being stoned. If you want to know what this looks like, to me, one of the clearest examples of people who proclaim life in the face of death are when nine Christians in Charleston, whose loved ones were murdered, show up to tell the state that they don't want the shooter to be executed. Because that shooter, like all of us, is loved by God, created in his image. And what a witness that death no longer gets the last word. At the beginning of the 20th century, the American church gradually split into these two sort of rival factions, fundamentalists and modernists. The fundamentalists asserted that fundamental truths of the Bible, the resurrection, the virgin birth, etc., needed to be held on to and defended. And the modernists believed that Jesus' moral teachings compelled us to go out and help the poor. It's where the beginnings of the term social gospel kind of come into play. And I can say with all of the arrogance of historical hindsight that this split was totally unnecessary because the fundamental truth of Christianity is that death has lost. And so we are free to live new lives to serve the poor. These two things don't have to be at odds with each other, but should feed off of one another. After all, in the next chapter of Acts, Peter comes across this lame man asking for money. And there's that famous verse that although I don't have silver and gold, what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, here's an illustration of a chasm that is between God and man that you can't jump over as far as you jump. But there's a cross that creates a bridge with a weird little top at the point that you climb over. And now you can have forgiveness of sins. And when you die, you can be with Jesus. That's the answer, right? No. He heals the man. He says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. It's interesting. Clearly, forgiveness of sins is part of our project as well. We heard in today's gospel reading, Jesus giving the authority to forgive sins to the disciples, and yet that's not the message that Peter says. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, this Messiah who defeated death, in his name I heal you. The church is declaring life and bringing it wherever it can, and that involves us saying that he is the victor over death, but it involves us being his hands and feet declaring victory to a dying world that needs to understand this, not just with their brains, but with their whole lives. And so the church is made up of the people who declare that we know who our real enemy is. That enemy is death, but it could not hold our king. And we have hope that through the power of his resurrection, it will ultimately not be able to hold us either. It no longer has the power that it once did. It was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus, and now sin and death are losing their grip everywhere this good news is proclaimed, in word and in deed. 
So this morning, I pray that this simple truth is at the heart of our churches, of our lives, of our declaration, that we may be people of life, declaring the resurrection of our Messiah, defeating death once and ultimately for all. Amen.